Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. This particular miracle is called Jesus Calms the Storm in various Bibles that have titles. This miracle is found in Matthew chapter 8, in Mark chapter 4, and in Luke chapter 8. This is the first time chronologically that Jesus has taken on Mother Nature, as it were, and calmed a storm, or in any way messed with the weather. People who look at this storm and have looked at the Sea of Galilee, now that we have all sorts of manner of ways of figuring out how weather happens, people have gone to the Sea of Galilee, and north of the Sea of Galilee is a very tall mountain range, more than a mile tall. And up there, the air is pretty cold. And down in the valley, the Sea of Galilee being 680 or so feet below sea level, it's quite warm, and warm air will collect. And then you have this cold air come sweeping down the mountain, and it's the warm air, and you get a storm. It is this type of mixing violently of cold and warm air that is your basis for your tornadoes and your hurricanes and your swirling sort of storms. Uh, The Sea of Galilee does not have the area. It doesn't have the uh, push to have those swirling types of storms, but it'll have heavy, heavy cloud cover. It'll dump a lot of rain and it'll have very strong winds that'll come up almost immediately and then slowly dissipate of the disciple group, you have Peter, James, and John who were professional fishermen on the Sea of Galilee and they would go out in their long boat and they would catch fish and they would normally, regularly fish at night. Apparently at night is when it's easier to throw a net out and the fish are coming to the surface to eat the bugs and stuff and so you can catch more fish at night. They, they have understood, and so when Jesus says, let's get in a boat and go, and if you look at Mark 4.35, Jesus says, let's go to the other side. So what does the other side of the Sea of Galilee mean? The Sea of Galilee is a kind of pear-shaped lake with the big part at the bottom and the narrow part down below at the north end and the south end, and the total north-south measurement is 13 miles. So it is a kind of hefty lake, and at the big part of the north part, it's eight miles across. And so if Jesus started in Galilee or Capernaum, it doesn't say where he started, uh, but it's about eight miles is what people are estimating to go across the sea. And They started at night. It doesn't say that it was at night, but throughout the first part of Matthew, Jesus would spend all night healing people and teaching. He had very little sleep during the first uh, several chapters around chapter 8. And so 
people would not allow him to get away at one o'clock in the afternoon, for example, to get in a boat, they would have swamped him and they would have brought people to him to heal him. Uh, all sorts of people, you have remembered the person that was let down from the roof. There was the two people, two young people who were healed at a distance, that Jesus healed a leper, he healed a demon-possessed man. And then there's other places where it just says he healed all who came. So Jesus is working hard. And when we say, yeah, but he's God, and God doesn't get tired, yeah, but he's God incarnate, and Jesus the man, the body of Jesus, I'm sure, is exhausted. And so he was able to sleep in the boat. And so they get into the boat, starting in verse 23. And when he had gotten to the boat, his disciples followed him. So Jesus gets into a boat and they follow. In Mark, he says, we're going to go to the other side. People have looked at the language of let's go to the other side and say it's not really a command, but it is a fulfillment statement. Uh, it is a statement of fact. They are going to get in the boat here. They're going to get out of the boat here on the other side. Okay, And that's kind of important to the story. And so the great storm arises, and it may be bigger than Peter, James, and John have ever seen. They seem kind of freaked out about this. The water was swamping the boat, which means that there was more water in the boat than outside the boat. The boat was filling up with water. This type of boat was just a simple bucket made out of wood that was elongated that would hold fish. And so there's nothing in it in the way of buoyancy. There's no double hull this or that. If it fills with water, it will sink to the bottom. And there has been archaeological evidence of boats that have been found from Jesus' era that are on the bottom, that have, you know, fall, you know sunk with all hands uh, uh, aboard. And they even found one that was buried in the, in the sand on the shore, that apparently there was a big storm, and it buried one of these boats in the mud on the shore, and they've actually been able to get it out, and it's in a museum in Jerusalem, and so we know exactly how long and wide and what these things were made of, because we found one 2,000 years old, and these were not, these were seaworthy, but... You know, what can you do? You're making things out of nails and wood that you cut down. And this storm is freaking them out. And so Jesus is sleeping. And so you have disciples that are scared. And you have Jesus who is sleeping. And so in verses 25, it says, And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now in Mark 4.38, they actually say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now there's a misunderstanding statement. You are never, ever, ever to tell God he doesn't care. Okay? No matter what situation you're in, you never tell God that he doesn't care. Because he will always care more than you even realize about what's going on. But yet, they're scared. And so in being scared, they said, don't you care? 
And Jesus' response says, Why are you afraid? Why are you timid? O you of little faith. Now, the disciples up to this point know some facts about Jesus. They have seen things. They probably couldn't write a full theological doctrinal statement about who Jesus is at this point. Uh, they don't really get that sort of knowledge about Jesus until they get the uh, Holy Spirit at the upper room. But at this point, what have they seen? They have seen the casting out of demons. They have seen the healing of a leopard. They have seen the healing of a withered hand. They have seen the raising of the dead of a widow's son. They have seen Jesus heal from a distance they have seen the paralyzed man lowered through the roof. They have quite a list. And all the miracles that are not listed specifically in the Gospels where it just said, and he spent all night healing and teaching. They have hundreds of miracles in mind, seeing what Jesus can do, a wide variety of healings and miracles and teachings that Jesus has done, that they have a handle of basic knowledge that Jesus is powerful, that Jesus, when a need comes, he can take care of it. And never in the Gospels does Jesus ever tell anybody, I'm too tired or I don't want to or I don't care. He never turns away somebody who has a need to be healed or to be taught to anybody in the Gospels. That never happens. And so the disciples have never seen Jesus express lack of care. But yet they are taking their situation and their understanding of their situation and placing it on God, like God doesn't understand, like God doesn't get where I'm at, like God doesn't know where I'm at, like God has no understanding of what I'm doing. Second thing that they know is Jesus said, we're going to the other side. Jesus said that. Jesus has never lied to them. They've never been able to pull up where Jesus said something and something else happened. Jesus didn't say, I think we're going to the other side. Jesus said, in full understanding, we are going to the other side. And so, in their mind, they needed to understand that if we all die in the middle of the lake and go to the bottom of the lake, we're not going to the other side Therefore, Jesus is a liar, and Jesus being a liar means that everything else that he has done is called into question. Now, this may be too detailed of a thought for somebody who is drowning in the middle of a, in a boat in the middle of the lake. So, they are seeing water come in. Jesus is sleeping because he is exhausted. And they wake him, which probably was not a happy thing. Jesus, you know, he likes to, he wants to help, but he also needs to sleep. And he criticizes 
their uh, lack of faith, their lack of believing. What is faith? Faith is putting legs to, is putting action to what God has said, what God has shown. What God has said up to this point is that we're going to the other side of the lake. So faith would be, I'm going to act like we're going to make it to the other side of the lake. You also have all the teaching. You have all the miracles. Jesus gets up. He rebukes them. Then he rebukes the storm. He tells the storm to be quiet and to settle down. And instantly the storm is ended and the Sea of Galilee is as smooth as glass. And there isn't one lick of wind. There may not have been a cloud. You don't know because it's nighttime. But there is no evidence of a storm. The storm is over instantly, completely, and totally. And so they make it to the other side while the disciples are still uh, bucketing out the, the boat because the water was still in the boat. And so the question that is appointed is, Jesus rebukes the disciples. And when we look at that, we can say, okay... Uh, am I one of the disciples that Jesus is going to rebuke or can rebuke? Have I ever committed the sin of being afraid and having little faith when God has told me something that is true and therefore I am worthy of a rebuke about my faith? And you can look at this and you can say, but they thought they were going to die. And I will say... No, they didn't. They felt like they were going to die. If you could pull Peter, James, and John and the rest of the gang out of the boat and put them in a classroom in the middle of this and give them a quiz, they would pass the quiz on who Jesus is and what power Jesus has. In their head, they had experience, they had knowledge, they had a working out, and they were probably still thinking about it every day, about what is Jesus, you know, what's the limit of his power, and, and what is he going to do, and is he going to wipe out the Romans. But the, the idea that Jesus is on their mind all the time shows that they have an understanding, basically, of who Jesus is. But it looks like from all external observers, like they're going to die in the boat. And so they function like all the stuff they know doesn't matter. It looks like I'm going to die. It feels like I'm going to die. And therefore, I'm going to die. And therefore, I'm going to wake up Jesus and he'll die with us or at least fix the situation. This is, there's many names that commentators have called this. It's basically the disconnect between faith and feelings that is part of the human condition. All of us are born into sin. All of us are living in sin. All of us are saved out of sin if you are saved but we still have sin in us. There is still a struggle of the sin nature, as it is called, in between that and our faith, between that and the truth we know. 
And that is why, even as a saved Christian, we can purposefully and willfully sin because it is, brings comfort or pleasure, even though we know it's wrong. We, can't, we have this conflict in us, which is fixed. When Jesus Christ comes back, he'll go ding, and you'll be fixed, and you'll only have goodness and light, and your faith will be wonderful, and there will be no sin, and there will be no conflict. And the type of things that these people in the boat are going through will never happen in heaven. There will never be a time where our lives will be threatened and we won't know what's going on. When we're in heaven, it says there's no death in heaven. And we'll know that. And so if something happens that looks like we're going to die, we need to know, hey, we're not going to die because there's no death in heaven. In this situation, Jesus has a future for these disciples. The immediate future is we're going to get to the other side of the lake. They knew that, they believed him, but they thought they were going to die. And I think that happens to everybody from time to time. Christians get scared, just like everybody else. Christians get fearful. Christians get shocked, just like everybody else. It is the... It is the human condition that we all have is that we all do not have perfect view of what's going to happen in the future, so something's going to happen that we don't like, something's going to happen that scares us, something's going to happen that shocks us. The, the shooting in Texas is a shocking thing, and we can say, how can this happen? Well, how is, because evil reigns in the world, but what is our response? Our response is that God is still good. God is still love. God is still uh, moving the world toward his return. And so we need to have the faith and the understanding as we mourn and as we pray through the difficult things that happen. I think a true Bible-believing Christian is, is shown by how much time passes between the shock and the fear and your faith coming back. And I think the quicker that that happens, the, more that you're, the stronger your faith is. If you find that you are affected by a trauma or a fear, that goes on for so long you begin to doubt the existence of God, well, that is something that you need to work on your faith. You need to be in the Bible. And so Jesus makes the storm go away, and it is perfectly calm. It is as calm as it's ever been, probably the calmest it has ever been. And they said, what sort of man is this? They have seen leprosy healed. They have seen demons cast out, but they have never seen somebody control the weather. And so he has controlled the weather. He has brought up and, and calmed the storm. And that is a new miracle, a new style of miracle that has not been seen by these disciples up to this point. There is evidence in the Old Testament of God using weather uh, in the book of Joshua twice. God sent hail against the enemies of Joshua so that they, God would fight on the side of Joshua 
And in one passage, it actually says that more people were killed by the hail than by the sword of Joshua. So God was fighting on the side of Joshua against the Canaanites to take the promised land, and he used weather to do that. And so weather is fully under the control of God. If you read the book of Malachi, the point of the book of Malachi is that God has sent a very, very strong, strong drought that has lasted for almost a generation, an intense drought to punish the Jewish people for them not following him, for them not following the law. And the, the sin is talked about in the book of Malachi, and the punishment is this big old drought, and so God can use weather to punish and discipline and get the attention of people. I'm not putting any weight on the drought that we're in now as to what it means, because God has created systems, and God has created cycles of weather that people can predict and you can open your phone and say is it going to rain today and you can get a pretty solid idea of whether it's going to rain today because weather is predictable sometimes and moves in cycles and such but that doesn't mean that God is not involved in weather God is the manager of every raindrop that's out there and every weather that's out there and that is amazing to the disciples they said what sort of man is this and of course the answer is he's not just a man he's God incarnate and God is in charge of the weather and so is Jesus so Jesus is showing at this point that he is as far as the disciples are concerned fully omnipotent he can do anything he wants to do he can heal, he can mess with the weather, he can control the spiritual realm. Any problem or need you throw at Jesus, it is handled without any difficulty. Jesus is God incarnate, and this is the lesson that is being shown to these disciples, that when they're in the presence of Jesus, there is no need to fear, for he is God incarnate. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, I praise your name. For this day, and even though there are difficult things, even though there are things we don't understand, even though there are times of mourning, we know that you are God omnipotent, God omniscient, and God omnipresent. And we know that you know it all and that you are managing it all. Give us the faith to know this no matter what we go through. We ask all this through the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.